This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Grandstand Digital, this is more than just a game. Yes, welcome to More Than Just a Game, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Roach with you here, and joining me today in our last instalment of 2018, a couple of very good friends and colleagues. First up, it's David Gill. Get out of you, Gilly. How's things? Great. Another great year for the team. Yeah, it, it, good point, actually. Good point. And Simon Johnson, coming off being rested for the last show, mate, uh, how's the silly season been treating you? Mate, I was going to mention it. It's great to spend another silly season with you, Roachie. They keep getting longer, though, don't they? Oh, or maybe we just can't cope with it as well. Uh, speaking of the silly season, it's uh, it's all been too much for our fourth member, Stephen Riley. He's been put out to pasture for this show, uh, maybe prepping for the Boxing Day test. Quite possibly. He's getting down, ready for that. Melbourne. Coming up, we'll uh, look, speaking of cricket, we'll look at the brave new world of cricket coverage and cricket culture in this country and how that's all panning out so far. We'll be talking to former Wallaby Ben Darwin a little later in the show about best teams, how they're created and perhaps where some club administrations have gone wrong. Also, look at the situation at Man U uh, and look back at 2018 and indeed ahead to 2019. And of course, wrap it up with Red Card, Yellow Card, where we have a bit of fun at the expense of sports people around the world. You can follow us on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. Subscribe to the show, of course, via iTunes or your favourite podcast app. But for now, let's get into the next edition of More Than Just a Game. More Than Just a Game on ABC Grandstand Digital. So a new summer of cricket has dawned and new is the operative word, a world of elite honesty, of course. And, and I, I do love the way that phrase is already working its way into the, into the vernacular. Like it's elite said, honesty. Yeah. yeah, it's said with guffaws now, but I give it two years and someone in middle management somewhere is going to say that in a meeting with a straight face. Drilling down. Uh, yeah, that. exactly. Elite honesty. It'll, it'll join those ranks. Uh, but look, we'll come to culture in a moment. First up, though, the new TV coverage. Now... Of course, uh, all of us here at More Than Just a Game only ever listen to the of ABC course. radio coverage of the cricket. Um, but once or twice this season, just for research purposes only, uh, we might have quickly switched on the telly. And and look, my first admission is that I'm not missing the iconic Channel 9 intro music as much as I was expecting. That, that's my first observation. Yeah, yeah, likewise. And I'm not missing you calling it a telly either, but we can move on from that. It's it's a TV, but um, yeah, look, it's great. Sorry. You've got you've got the option of the uh, the, the free to air and or the um, pay TV. But, but but one of the really interesting things is the stump mic. The use of the stump mic, a, a massive difference from um, years gone by. And actually, I think the interesting thing is, so Fox have taken a different approach to Channel 7. Channel 7 will use it, but probably in the way that Channel 9 had previously used it. So it's generally only when the ball, when the ball is dead. Whereas Fox has decided um, every now and again, they'll just have a hole over where you just hear the players mm. out there. And mm-hmm. there's been some crackers. I mean, we, would we oh, have heard okay. the, the sledge about Coley? but for that little innovation. So the commentators shut up for, for a, a hole, hole over. over. Okay. Yeah, and so it'll, it'll say in the box up the top, listening. And so if you're watching the Fox coverage um, for that over, you actually just hear everything that's going on, both um, whilst they're bowling and in between balls. And it's great. Like you hear um, the Indian keeper pant, yeah. get chirping away, yeah. getting into the batsman's ear. And otherwise we managed to hear that famous, well now famous sledge of uh, Tim Payne where he had a crack at one of the Indian batsmen and said, you can't like is him it, as a bloke. I know he's your captain, yeah. but you can't <laughs> like him as a bloke. Just brilliant stuff. And you liked it because I've had some technological issues. So I've been stuck, for lack of a better word, on the Channel 7 commentary and heard it a little bit, but obviously nowhere near as much as on on Fox. But you think it adds I, something to I, the... I do. I mean, it, it takes away that whole, whole 
old adage of what goes on in the field stays on the field because, I mean, we wouldn't have heard that in years gone by but for the change. I did see that the head of uh, Seven's cricket coverage, he actually came out and said stump mics are an important part of cricket but you've got to remember it's a player's workplace. So Mm. they've taken a a far more conservative approach. They're concerned to ensure, I suppose, that there's going to be no swearing on TV but so far it's been fantastic. Really good innovation by Fox. Yeah, well, I'm generally not a fan of that level of intrusion but uh, it does remind me a bit of... Uh, I reckon this would be a decade ago. There was a series that Australia played in South Africa where the stump mic was turned up when the ball was dead, but the players weren't notified. And so people like Warney came out and sort of, you know, said, well, that's that's not on. Mm. And and, and Jono, as to to your, the over where the commentators don't talk, back in this iteration of, of Fox, you could actually switch off the commentary but still have the effects mic so you could sit mm. there for half for hours and listen to just the effects mic which in, and then and the, and the stump mic well it required a, a change by the icc so i think yeah. in july this year the icc actually said look it's now up to the host broadcaster to decide what they do and the players just have to abide by that so look i think it brings the australian cricket coverage into line with world sporting coverage the trend is that viewers mm-hmm. should be allowed to get closer to the game oh yeah i'm not sure that's a trend i mean you have refs mic'd up at various codes around the place but i'm not sure you have mics you know that they pick up what the players are saying with such regularity oh, and, and, i think and, in and, american sport it does american now but I, I i think it's public entertainment they, they 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 need to be more careful about what they say which is probably a good thing but i think it just adds to the to the overall spectacle maybe it's just the old athlete in me <laughs> the purist. <laughs> no, the athlete. Notice the way I left a pause there for you to laugh. But um, I think there's something sacred about the field of play. It's, you know, I think you're, you're stuck in 1994. Yeah, I may well be, but that's not to say I'm wrong. Um, look, and I wonder too, I don't want to dwell on the commentary per se of, of either channel because obviously, you know, uh, but I wonder if there's much flipping between the options, given that people have an well, of the 20% of Australian households that have Fox Sports, mm. oh, you know, I wonder whether there's much flipping. Oh, here's person X on, on Channel 7, so I'm going to flip over to watch I've, it on I've there. been guilty of that, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So if I don't like the commentary on Fox, uh, so for example, when Kerry O'Keefe comes on, I, uh, sorry Kerry, I'll flip back to Channel 7 really? sometimes and listen oh, to Punter, because I like Punter. But I, I, I agree, and I was trying to do the same thing until I ran into a techn- technological issue with, with Fox Style, but I think with the 7 team, which is pretty much brand new. I mean, a lot of them have experience, but as a team, they brand new. There's a big range of quality among among the commentators. I think uh, Ricky Ponting is the standout, just excellent analysis, seeing the game at a level above any of the other commentators. Like he did on the field. Yeah, and obviously, you know, his uh, his big bash commentary experience. And look at the other thing, it's it's great to see on both uh, both options, the female voice, which obviously just what didn't happen at Channel 9 since Kate Fitzpatrick's famous episode about 400 years ago. Um, but look, more to the point... Um, what, what I found great is that there's something about the Foxtel version that allows you to sync up the ABC grandstand commentary, which, which had always been a bit problematic. So you don't have that one and a half to two second delay. Correct. Right. Correct. So you can go back to syncing up the radio with the TV. Look at you flying the ABC's colours, Roach. I had it's to get Christmas. back there eventually. Are you getting the bonus I had or not? to get back there eventually. ABC will be paying its <laughs> usual bonus to you this year. <laughs> And what do we Can't what, wait for that one. And what do we think of cultural change uh, with the Australian cricket team? Ha, has it worked? I guess having won the Perth Test, uh, everyone, it's all apples. Um, but if we'd gone 2-0 down, I think it would have been a very different story. I think it's a cynical group of fans that uh, base their assessment of the, the cultural change based on uh, the results like that. But, uh, but 
I think, it, I mean, it was interesting to see the way they played in Adelaide as opposed to the way they played in Perth. And I'd probably use Mitchell Stark as an example. So he, mm. perhaps it was a form thing, but he didn't have that same presence. His body language wasn't great. You looked at him at Perth. He had that real aggression about him. I don't know whether he, he was chirping away and sledging or anything, but he seemed to be back and playing that, that old Australian way, you know, uh, knowing where the line is. Not crossing the line. The line. But it was, it was good to see. And look, I think Tim Payne's um, the captain we had to have, and he's really, it was a watershed test for him, wasn't it? Mm. It was fantastic in that we're playing the way the Australian fans want us to play. We're playing hard cricket. We're really competitive. Um, having said that, that pitch was set up for us and for our bowling attack. Let's see mm. how we go in Melbourne. Mm. Yep, maybe. Um, I, I think, too, what's interesting is the way some of the old guard are responding to the, the change in approach in the Australian team over the first couple of tests, where, um, you know, some of the, the blokes from the 70s are sort of... Look, actually, even Michael Clark has been pretty public around... Jared Waitley. Uh, well, yeah, well, that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leap into that in just a sec, Joe. You're ahead of me. Um, but, but Clark himself talking about the, 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 the Aussie, the, the way they're playing. The good old days. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, even, you know, when was Clark here last captain? Not that long ago. Um, and I was interested to uh, Alan Border because there's a lot of discussion out after the second just about uh, Virat Kohli's carry on, and Border was trying to have a foot in both camps. Like he said, look, I, you know, it's it's not a bad thing to have that level of some some character some characters in there, uh, and to bring a bit of passion to the game. So it's I think well, it just shows it is a pretty fine line, isn't it? No one really knows where that mystical the line lies. But uh, yeah, we're, we're treading it pretty finely, and I thought it was great in Perth. Um, but yeah, Johnny, you mentioned that the Clark. Jared Waitley tiff um, was, it was it was not direct was it like they weren't there was no face to face over the radio desk kind of thing it yeah was, I think Waitley came out and said he could trace the the problems with the Australian cultural problems back to the the Clark era and Clarky teed off on social media and said because he misunderstood that he, what Waitley wasn't saying Clark caused it no he contributed to the culture I think that's so what I that think was. Clark proved his point and uh, embarrassed himself somewhat uh, and look. I just want to sort of maybe end up where we started uh, about the theme song, uh, the Channel Seven theme song, the theme for the, the theme for the common man. I think that's what that's what it's called, and it's, Channel Seven's been using it for decades. Um, but just in case anyone mistakenly believes it's Channel Seven music, there, there is a piece of music called the theme for the theme for the common man. I'm pretty sure that's what it really is. Really done your research on this, Rich. Oh, I'm very impressed. Just, just, I thought this was just general knowledge. But what I encourage people to do, you you two included, mm. is to jump on YouTube and look at the video clip. Oh, okay. Theme for the common man. You're gonna reckon, give me a hint. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll give you ta- a little teaser. I reckon it's probably late seventies, maybe early eighties. Right. It's a bunch of sort of Euro rocker looking kind of guys. Brilliant. Yeah. They're on a stage in a stadium. Yep. That is empty. <laughs> <laughs> I a, like it already. In a sports stadium, and they're just rocking out on the stage, going hard. Not a soul there to be seen. It's 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 quite poignant. Quite like it. Anyway, do yourself a favour and have a look at the video clip of Channel 7's theme song. All right, go to the Aussies for the rest of the summer and make sure you listen to ABC Grandstand. Being the tech-savvy professional that I am, I was on LinkedIn the other day and uh, in amongst all the usual humble bragging you find there on LinkedIn, I came across an item announcing the best 25 sports teams in Australasia. Now, uh, we love our lists here on More Than Just a Game, so looking into it further, it turns out that former Wallaby Ben Darwin has co-founded a company called Gainline Analytics, the creators of this list, and he joins us now. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, tell me, how does a former Wallaby prop find himself owning a company deeply involved in sports data analytics? What's the path that's kind of led you here where you are now? 
Um, so I had my injury in 2003 and I retired from rugby um, and then I started getting into coaching. Um, I did that over a number of years and then in 2008 when the global financial crisis hit I decided to try to add another string to my bow and so I offered to the team I was at in Japan to start doing data analytics and so um, I then uh, attempted to learn as much as I could about it without any formal qualifications and then got offered a job at the Melbourne Rebels as a data analyst and video analyst there and um, that was the beginning of that and I did that for a number of years back in and out of coaching and then in 2013 I was fired from the job I was at in Japan and what do you do when you get fired? You become a consultant. So I started <laughs> my own business uh, at, uh, as a consultant um, in 2013 and that's how Gainline Analytics started. So Ben, to, to the list is a very interesting list. Some obvious entries like the um, Mighty Crusaders rugby team. Uh, other surprises. I, I never knew there were so many water polo teams in Australia. But tell us a bit about how you went about putting the list together. What was the, the methodology? The first thing was we wanted to try to let the statistics speak for themselves because if you just said who are the best teams in Australia, you'd go towards the names. Um, and so we tried to come up with a criteria about what competitive means and also what success means. So the first thing we decided was, first of all, it's not just about winning titles, it's about who is, who is winning continuously. So if you win a title one year and last the next, you know, is that success or is that just peaking? The second part we looked at was the size of the competition. Is it easier to win the Sheffield Shield with, with six teams or is it easier to win the NRL? So what we did is we tried to look at... Um, you know, maybe coming second in the NRL was actually almost equal to winning the Sheffield Shield. The next part was competitiveness of the league. And one of the easiest ways to look at competitiveness is um, the stability of a league. So the Sheffield Shield obviously is the most stable competition, whereas, say, the NBL has probably been one of the more unstable, or like rugby league in the late 90s, early 2000s. Because when you get instability, you get churn of the teams, and when you get churn, you get underperformance. And so, um, you know, we say that there are sometimes... You know, winning a comp is like winning the best cafe in Baghdad. You just remain open, you'll <laughs> probably win it. So once we, um, once we started to use that criteria, and the other thing we had to do was to punish teams in the same way the league punished teams. So Melbourne Storm, Carlton. Um, if teams got simple straight small fines, we didn't bother about it. But if they had points removed, you know, we removed those. So we had to remove a lot of the seasons of the Melbourne Storm. Um, and it was interesting is actually once you remove the punishments for Carlton, they actually got better, which was interesting. Um, but over, over time, we also wanted to put a, a highlight towards the leagues that don't necessarily get attention. For this one, we decided to do the best of the last 25 years, so 10 years was also important. Um, and one of the more competitive leagues in Australia is the National Water Polo League. Hmm. Um, and so that's been very stable, and there's been some teams that are very heavily dominant. Um, the others, like WNBL, has been a good competition. Um, and we actually started this off around the idea of Australia, but the problem was there was New Zealand teams like the Breakers, like the Warriors in, in Australian League, so we decided to expand it to Australasia because there was a giant asterisk sitting at the top that said the Canterbury Crusaders. <laughs> that was a mistake, wasn't it, expanding that out to the Kiwis? I had to go and personally <laughs> deliver them a check, which was not <laughs> the world. I saw, um, Ben, there's some pretty well-known names, obviously, on the list. The Crusaders uh, came out number one, the Brisbane Broncos are there, but there's also, as you mentioned before, some unsung names there, so the Adelaide Lightning women's basketball team and the, the Newcastle North Stars ice hockey teams. I was interested um, to, to, I guess, get a perspective from you as to whether you thought there were some common traits um, which would be shared amongst those well-known sports dynasties and perhaps a few of the unsung teams. Well, I, th I think success is always comparative. It depends upon the league you're in. 
you know, there are some leagues, you know, the more unstable a league is, the more you can actually buy success. Whereas if you take the AFL as an example of this, it's, it's an incredibly stable competition, particularly what we call contractually stable. It's, if the AFL existed overseas, it would be illegal. <laughs> you can't keep players the way they do. But what it means is, is that to bring an expansion franchise in takes a lot longer. So the GWS, you know, they're six, seven years in. They still haven't won a title yet. Whereas, you know, I think Western Sydney Wanderers, when they joined the A-League, were competitive almost straight away. So mm. it says something to the way that each competition is built. But the overall, and this is, this is really our company's area of research, is how does governance affect teams over time and how do you put together success and, and not only what does that look like, but what are the drivers of it? And the biggest thing is contractual stability. Contractual stability is a huge driver, and, and we have a very simple number for that. But if you look at the number one teams, what we call TWI, they are the Crusaders, the Broncos, Geelong. They tend to develop from within rather than from the outside. And it's not about individual signings. It's about, you know, are they a buy or a build? And the more that clubs build, the better they do over the long term. Ben, I'm interested in your comments here about the... Um the Wanderers in particular, how they just were, were successful straight off the bat. Do you, I mean, I appreciate the work you've done as, in Australia and, and New Zealand teams in this instance. So can you comment at all on the US sporting? No, so so this, this, this list we're talking about is simply Australasia's. For our research into what we call cohesion analytics, um, we've gone nine different sports over 30 years. So we've done millions and millions of, of um, you know, athletes and seasons and games. Um, so we've looked at NBA, EPL, NRL, okay. more European football. It's all all the all the um, the dynamics are the same, but each sport fundamentally you know works in a mildly different fashion. So my question that springs from your mention of the Wanderers is the NHL, the National Hockey League, where the Las Vegas Golden Knights were a brand new franchise, and in their first season they made the Stanley Cup, they made the Grand Final, uh, although didn't win that. So the I would have called the NHL a fairly stable competition. Is that the case by your sort of definite your use of the word? And and if so, how does that ex, you know is Las Vegas a real sort of outlier, or are they sort of was that predictable inverted commas in any sort of way? I, I think the first thing with with the um, with the NHL is one is it's the the quality of the teams is a little bit heavier towards the other side of the competition. So when you actually looked at at their side, they were probably seventh or eighth best in the league, but the nature of the league meant they got towards that top half. The NHL, from a contractual stability, let's say that AFL is TWI 70%, 75%, Super Rugby, the top teams are 80%, the NHL would be more around the 40 to 30%. It's nowhere near as contractually stable as most competitions. The EPL, the championship, would probably be some of the worst um, we've looked at. Um, and the other part to NHL is it's five guys on the field, or I'm going to get that number wrong, five or seven yeah, guys. it's five, so yeah. the, le- the less participants you have, the easier it is to build understanding over time. So for a sport like the AFL, you've got 18 people on the field, you get less time with each individual. So the NBA is similar. The, the, you, know, you can build a team and build understanding quite quickly in the NBA. In the context of a season, you look at, say, you know, the Lakers this year, they've improved pretty dramatically despite churning you know, reasonably heavily. But if you look at, say, the highest TWI team over the last, you know, every year, but this year it's been the Spurs. You know, they've gone for that build versus uh, buy over time. So there's a dynamic at play within each context, each relationship, and each sport. Hmm. Um, but the fundamentals over time tend to be pretty good. And I would say, like the Vegas, you know, Vegas are a wonderful test case for us. You know, what did they hmm. get? 
that was different. I think they're the only expansion league. Transfer teams aren't the same. Like you, you move a team from Queensland, you know, Cleveland to St Louis, they retain the same list fundamentally. Mm. Um, but they're the first expansion league, I believe, to make the playoffs in North American sport. So they are a, a definitely a rare case. And, and we're not trying to get to say we believe this, therefore it's the truth. What we're trying to understand is what is the truth. You know, how much does understanding affects performance over time? Can people do it? And Vegas was a wonderful example of being able to do it in what we might call a medium stability competition. And so we try to pick up the cues of what they've done. And and, and one of the things they did very well was they didn't tend to go for senior players. They tended to go for younger players because Mm -hmm. younger players learn faster. Older mm-hmm. players have habits that are hard to undo. You get someone out of Hawthorne, you've got to undo the Hawthorne out of the first, <laughs> you know, before they're going to be effective. And so um, they're a really interesting test case. And TWI doesn't just represent, um, you know, time together. It also represents what we call purity of experience. And so it's one really interesting case is the less experience a player has, the easier it is for him to transfer into a new environment. Ben, you made um, what I thought was quite an interesting point um, that some some of the teams with the largest followings, I think you referred to Collingwood, Carlton and the old Parramatta Eels, they're often less successful. And I think you, you mentioned potentially this is because there were too many stakeholders uh, involved. Can, can you explain, I guess, how the analytics part of that um, plays out? Well, I, I think the worst thing we find with clubs tends to be boards because boards will take <laughs> a middle line or they'll panic and they'll, they'll say, that's it, the coach isn't working, let's go with something else. I think Geelong, you know, in the, in the late, uh, late 2000s, when Bomber Thompson wasn't quite getting the success they thought was a great example, the board said, that's it, he's done, we're going to go with a new coach. And the CEO said, no, 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 we're going to stick this out. Mm-hmm. And they're sticking it out. You know, they went three or four years. You know, Richmond, the year they won the grand final, someone tried to overthrow the board. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a, um, we tend to find the clubs that are more dominated by a singular vision um, and not have you know large amounts of following, therefore large amounts of pressure to win, tend to do better because because the more stakeholders you have, the more opinions you have, the more pressure you have, and the more you tend to balk and, and make decisions. And the, the Swans have a great term, which is "Don't panic, it's organic." You know, <laughs> the, the, the bigger the club, the more the panic. Um, I mean, you can outspend it, no question. If you've got enough money, you can buy titles. So we say we have a notion which is skill times cohesion equals capacity. So you have the skill of the individuals, you have the understanding of the group, and the capacity is what the team can do. And it's a really interesting way to judge coaches. And I've got to say, like in a lot of competitions, we find the coaches who do the best with the list they have, if the list isn't well constructed or they're they're taking on something that wasn't necessarily well put together, you know, um, a lot of coaches get fired that shouldn't be fired. Hmm. It's, um, it's interesting what you say about um, the capacity to buy. I mean, obviously, Man, C- Man City's in that boat where they threw a lot of money, but I'm, I suspect they probably, the, your suggestion is they paid overs to, to get there? Well, they certainly um, they certainly had to spend a lot of money. I think Chelsea now owe a brand of like a billion pounds or something. It's, it's like, you know, you have to, in order to overcome a lack of understanding, you have to basically buy individual talent and then you try to keep it stable. But that's not exactly sustainable. You look at the EPL as a, it's not really a sustainable league. It's private owners throwing money at the problem, and that creates a competitive environment. If you look at, say, the Bundesliga, which is more academy-based, mm. you know, those sides, I think of the top two divisions, I think only three or four teams lose money. Hmm. They're far more sustainable, far better wins per dollar. Hmm. Um, if you look at French rugby, is a wonderful example. French rugby are not doing very well in Europe. 
at the moment, and yet their budgets are at least double most of the other clubs because all they focus on is let's go and buy another player, let's go and buy the answer. And so um, that we talk about that stability having an impact on performance, and particularly defence. Teams and non-cohesive teams are very poor defensively. I suppose that makes sense. Go a bit of cohesion, I understand. And uh, Dave will obviously be talking a bit more about Manu a little later in the show, so that'll be an interesting tie into what we're talking about here for now. But Ben, look, we'll have to leave it uh, for the moment. Thanks very much for being part of More Than Just a Game. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Ben Darwin joining us there, former Wallaby and co-founder of data analytics firm Gameline. More Than Just a Game on ABC Grandstand Digital. Yes, on to the shootout uh, around the world in eight or so minutes where we uh, have a look at uh, a few other topics just briefly. And football, of course, uh, Jose Mourinho had a rather ignominious and brief, relatively brief career at Manchester United. Uh, and look, I mean, Where do you go with this? Man U, the, the once great club, Gilly, you're a f- football expert. I mean, there's the on-field stuff that speaks for itself, but what can you tell us about what's going on off the field? Well, it's a, it's, it's a club. You couldn't really say it's in decline, but they... They haven't won the league since 2013, which if you go back the 20 years before that... It's a long time for is, them. <laughs> ...is an aberration. Um, but what they did do this year was turn uh, a record revenue number, £590 million, the biggest in world football, hmm. um, a pre-tax profit of £44 million. Wow. Uh, they still spent over £300 million on players during the Mao era. So During the what, sorry? The during the, the Mao era, the Mourinho era. Oh, Mao. Special, yeah. special one, Mao. Mao. But I, I think the feeling among Man United fans is that the, the club's somehow lost its its way spiritually or, or culturally. It's not about the football anymore. It's more of a business. And when the Glazers, the American family who now own Man United or most of Man United, first took over the club, that's what a lot of supporters were saying. And they were... The first few years were good and Ferguson, Alex Ferguson was still manager, Success on-field success was still pretty much guaranteed, but it seems like um, the concerns of the naysayers have borne out um, over time and right now it's really difficult to see where the club can go in the next two or three seasons to, to turn this around. And I suppose um, harking back to what Ben Darwin had to say a little bit before about how you build mm. successful teams, I wonder whether Jose has adopted for the quick fix, which is purchasing players and not focusing on building it internally. Mm. Um, contractual stability, I think, is what Ben was talking about. Maybe Man you needs to uh, pick up get the phone ben, to get Ben Darwin Mr. on the Darwin, line. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. How long have the Glazers had the had the keys to that place? Be a decade or so? Maybe, yeah, I think it was two thousand. I think it was two thousand and nine. And you know, they're still developing young players, but they stopped investing in their Carrington training ground, which at one point was state of the art and a decade ahead, every mm. other Premier League club. Not so much, uh, not so much anymore. And their current CEO is very much a financial man and came to the club from um, institutional banking. I think he was Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or an outfit of that nature, not a football person. Is and this it's, the guy that succeeded David Gill? Yes. David yes, Gill, the former CEO. The quietly competent David Gill. <laughs> Good on you, Gilly. Nice contribution. And just before we leave uh, football, you you mentioned those numbers about their revenue and their profit. But my understanding is they're they're po- like post tax. They're actually losing a little bit of money. So they're 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 treading a, they're straddling that line, the line between profit and and uh, and loss. Which I gather, well, my understanding is is kind of the way that the American sports owners in North America 
kind of run the club. It's not about making money for the club itself. It's a, it's a it's a it's a vanity project. Well, it's a lever- well, it's not a vanity project. It's or all a business. Mo- it's a business for the Glazers. It's all about making money. Yeah, yeah so and, it's a business and, for them. The Glazers, not a business for the club. They're less concerned about the, the absolutely business and, of the club. And, and they bought the club using debt, which then went onto oh, the Man yeah. United balance sheet. So <laughs> if you look over the decade that they've been in charge, six hundred and fifteen million pounds in operating profit but 523 million pounds in interest expenses. So the wow. actual net profit, much, much lower, and a lot of the net profit goes to them in dividends. And before we leave uh, Premier League, you two really need to pull your socks up in that tipping competition. <laughs> and to rugby, uh, a much-anticipated board meeting was held recently with uh, Mr Checker managing to hold on to his job. Uh, John, you were talking. Yeah, look, we, we love a boardroom debacle at more than just a game. <laughs> we're almost, we're almost you choose from. Almost as much as we love a coaching merry, merry-go-round. We got both <laughs> in this instance. Um, look, the AAU's done us proud in recent times, haven't they? A disastrous year, 2018. It was, I think, worse since 1958. Four wins from 13. The AAU board decided it would review uh, Checkers' position. At a marathon board meeting a little while ago, the chairman came out and said, sorry guys, nothing to report here, but we'll have a decision before you for you before Christmas. Eventually something was announced and Checker retains his job. Mm. Scott Johnson comes in uh, as director of football. So Checker's authority has been somewhat emasculated, I think it would be fair to say. Um, but look, it, I, I, I genuinely hope that um, the Wallabies can turn things around, but it doesn't look great for the World Cup next year. They, they have announced that they're moving towards a New Zealand model, a New Zealand-style model. where well, They're going to get some good players. and um, <laughs> No. I, I, I think pretty natural <laughs> talent appearing out of thin air. <laughs> it's, about, it's about consistency in terms of culture um, between the Super Rugby Clubs and the national team and building a foundation of excellence. Did you, you just say that with a straight face? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Doesn't matter on radio. <laughs> uh, I, hope, I, hope, I hope he's right. Look, um, there's a World Cup to look forward to next year, so we're just building just at the right time, I would have thought. And finally, on the shootout, it's from the It's Not Sport But We Like It file. Uh, I love it when an, uh, an otherwise mundane activity morphs into something competitive. I mean, all it takes is a handful of competitive people who do the same job and maybe an argument down the pub and, hey, presto, you've got the competition or the basis of a competition. And what, what, what do you know? You get a few people along from other countries and suddenly you've got a World Championships well, such is the case with ploughing. Say that again. Ploughing, yes, as, as in tractors of the planting crops right. variety. There is a ploughing world championships. Can what, you believe it? It's, where, it's where been does going this for a while. Well, in various countries, generally in Northern Europe, although there's an Aussie or two that tend, tend to make it to the world championships. But I just want you to picture this. So you're in a very, very large field. There's allocations of that field uh, with for the individuals to plough, mm. there's a tractor sitting on the field with a little national flag on it, mm. waving, oh, it's fluttering proudly. faintly in the in the in the in the faint breeze, and then the green the the red light goes on to know you know let everyone know that competition's about to start. And, and is it a race or is it the uh, quality oh, of he, the plough? Hear me out. Sorry. Hear me out. Legitimate question, but I'm getting there. Then an amber light comes on. So it's like you know being on the grid of a Formula One. You know, race Can I run. just add something about the amber light? The amber light is on for five minutes. Well, yeah, you'd sort of ruin it for oh, me. <laughs> <laughs> Some buildings. So it's just like Formula One, but yeah, you're right. It's on for five minutes, and then the green light goes. And from what I understand, when the green light goes on, the tractors lumber forward briefly and for a short period of time. Mm. And the driver hops out and starts doing measurements to check that the plough is actually aligned correctly, and then he's heading in the right direction. Is, this, or, or shoot, is there TV it? coverage of this championship? Oh, look again! You've sort of you've you've blown <laughs> on building up to where it's yeah. There's there's more, and it, it clearly is made for TV <laughs> because 
the competitors have 20 minutes to complete their first furrow, I think I pronounced that correctly, before they then get an hour break while the judges come around to check for, to your question earlier, Jono. Closely mown plows. Straightness. Right. Straight, it's all about straightness. Right. Like you can sort of, and, and effectiveness of the plowing, but I think it's And I think no weeds as well. I think part of the, the plowing technique is to get the weeds from the top and down <laughs> underground. It's just like Dave in his backyard on a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, Gilly. I'll have to take your word for that. Um, but yeah, then there's, they've got another two and a half hours to complete the plowing once the judges come around and it goes for two days. So it was at that point I was going to say it's really made for TV. Mm, um, I think there's a, a manual as well. One of the competitors' fathers had written the plowing manual, which, <laughs> which is a, a long book, which is used by the judges to assess each, each furrow. So it's, it's not a how to plow manual. It's how to have a world championships, how to, how to judge, judge a world championships. Yeah, how to judge has, a furrow. Has, has Ben Darwin done any data analytics on the, uh, I think, the plowing I think this is a fair teams. way down the list <laughs> that Ben Darwin's organization. Um, but it might not be that great for TV, but there is a potential movie. I think the U S competitor at the most recent world championships that was held in Germany, she is 16 years old and she beat her own father at last year's world championships to qualify for this year's. What a story. I reckon. Rochi, she's going to have to beat the Irish first because, I, as I understand it, the Irish dominate um, the, 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 the sport of ploughing and, in fact, have a, a national competition um, each year attended by thousands or tens of thousands, if, possibly hundreds of thousands of people. What have you guys been doing in December? <laughs> <What's> you... <laughs> the, the name of the competition in Ireland, which is so wonderfully Irish, is The Ploughing. <laughs> the Ploughing. <laughs> Clearly, Dave and I read the same article, which is why we brought it up. But uh, yeah, bizarre pastime. Uh, but there you go from the files of It's Not Sport, But We Like It. Yes, so uh, red card, yellow card, where we like poking fun at sporting folk who've... Uh, Created some misdemeanors, of course, some misdemeanors off the field of play. Who's going to kick me off today? I'll go first, Rochi. Um, look, it's unlike me to bring the tone of things down, I oh, know. No. I know it do is. Do we need to slap an M rating on your red no, card, no. yellow card again? I think I can do it. I think I can do it, PG, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> look, uh, it occurred during the Grand Slam of Darts tournament a few weeks ago in Wolverhampton. Right. Now, it's borderline, but it is technically off the field of play, so just um, just go with me for a moment. Because you do have form of trying to sneak on-field stuff. I know, I know, but just... just Bear with me. I will. It was a crucial round of 16 match. Uh, it was between two-time world champion Gary Anderson and his Dutch opponent, Wesley Adams. Sadly, the match uh, became highly controversial. It was hard fought with allegations that the man from Holland was responsible for creating a um, a Dutch oven <laughs> whilst, <laughs> on <you're> stage, <laughs> whilst on stage and about to throw oh, his is- dart. Is so, this the, oh, sorry, is this the one where he um, passed win? Indeed, indeed. So right. the Scotsman complained that his Dutch opponent was deliberately passing <laughs> wind in order to put off his opponent. So this became quite a scandal at the World Darts Championship. Quite a stink, dare I say it? Well, the, Did the, I just the, pinch a line from you there? The, the quote was, it was bad, it was a stink. Every time I walked past the table, there was a waft of rotten eggs and it was putting me off. Now the darts... Did, they both denied it, didn't they? They did. And look, I think there was an inquiry by the Darts Regulation Authority, the DRA. They, Not invest- the DRA. they investigated the incident because there were serious allegations that this involved gamesmanship. It's pretty outrageous, just terrible. But um, yeah, look, no no findings were made, and uh, the results stood. So, how are we supposed to allocate a, a, a card and to whom? Well, I think both of them for bringing the game of darts into disrepute. Because there's one yeah. of them. It's like there's a joint enterprise in criminality. You know, well, the, the... they were both accused, and, and no one was found guilty. Yeah, so I think both of them. Definitely a yellow. Indeed. Gilly. <laughs> Gilly. Gilly. Stop laughing. And what's your red card, yellow card, mate? 
Okay, well, we've talked a bit about Manchester United, so I've got ex-Man United left-back, um, Patrice Evra, uh, who's been known for a while for uh, unusual tweets and saying strange things on television, um, but he's really kind of surpassed himself mm-hmm. with his um, most recent tweet, which was an uploaded video, and it's it's hard to, to know how to, this uh, is a beauty. I'm, how to describe yeah, this on. one. How are you going to describe this one? Again, family show. It's a Thanksgiving video featuring Patrice engaging in what can only be described as intricate foreplay. Oh, hang on, Tick. With a raw chicken that he was presumably um, intending to cook. And there are a lot of low points in this video. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to to watch it. Racing out to see it by the sounds of things. But the the lowest point is... Kids check with mum first. after, After spanking the chicken, he then... Bends down towards it and what is it with you two blokes? Takes <laughs> takes a bite out of what was a raw chicken. Oh, right, okay. Salmonella. Is, so unhealthy, Salmonella, which unhealthy. is yeah, really, despite everything else as disturbing as it was before it, was the most disturbing part of the video. Yellow card for the salmonella risk. <laughs> if nothing else. I think it's a red for sure. It's, it's, but yeah, but he was, he's got form ever, right? He's, he's done a few weird things. Because I, I did see this video and... He knows he knows he's mucking around. He he's playing up to his reputation here. I don't think he's that stupid. I think I, this is for me I'm, this is just a yellow. I'm not sure. No. I, no. I think I, we give him a yellow and move on. Yellow for casting yeah. vote there from Jono. Uh look, just the one for me as well. Uh Steph Curry. Of course, uh, famous basketballer, clean up stunning upstanding young man, champion athlete, ornament to the game, all that sort of stuff. Uh, was on a podcast recently called, and the podcast is called Winging It, uh, if you don't believe me on this one coming up. It's hosted by a couple of Atlanta Hawks, apparently. Where just out of the blue, the group of them uh, started talking about dinosaurs, I think was where it all began. And then suddenly they were all agreeing that the moon landing had never happened. Never happened. Really? I know there's some they, people out there. Were that, they being fed income about Apparently. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's just it still amazes me that there are people who... I don't know, there's athletes, I suppose, maybe they're not necessarily super intelligent, but um, decided to file in behind the conspiracy theory. And uh, I'm happy to report that unperturbed NASA is nonetheless marking the 50th anniversary of man first orbiting the moon on Apollo, uh, on Apollo yeah. 8 around around. And, and have invited Steph Curry to <laughs> tour, their, tour their facility <laughs> so that he may, uh, he may <laughs> rethink his position. Come and see the moon rock, Steph. Uh, so look, I'm giving him a red just for... I give Steph Curry a red. Ignorance, Any opportunity to. Ignorance and, uh, you know, all, all the young kiddies who are under his influence teaching the whole thing. Anyway, uh, so look, on that note, before we actually say goodbye, given it's the end of 2018, a quick look back at 2018 and a quick look forward at 2019. So how about a, a sporting high and a sporting low for the year that was and a what you're looking forward to and maybe a bold prediction for, for 2019. Have you got that in you? Yeah, I reckon I could uh, come up with something, Reggie. So a sporting high of 2018. We'll look apart from uh, Mayan Day's performance at Bamboogle Dunes and Lost Farm oh. Golf Course a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Amazing. If I had to go past that, I will. Uh, the Tiger Woods comeback for me was the high of 2018. Great story for him and for golf. Uh, he won uh, the Tour Championship, coming back from back surgery, mm. had the DUI late in 2017, I think it was, and a fantastic story and um, just brilliant to watch. He went very close in a couple of majors, so came second, I think, at the PGA, sixth at the British Open. Because I was going through our old files, and that was your what I'm looking forward to this time 12 months there ago. There you go. There's some circularity there. Yeah. Indeed, some consistency. Um, Low of 2018, look, all the NRL off-field scandals, just horrible. And it just shows Todd Greenberg must have the hardest uh, job in sports administration. Um, Let's hope that 2019 is better for Todd Mm -hmm. Greenberg and the NRL. Mm -hmm. 
What am I looking forward to in 2019? Well, despite what I said before about Michael Checker and the Wallabies, I am looking forward to the Rugby World Cup. Mm. Um, not because I think the Wallabies will do well, but possibly because I might be getting over there for a week or so. <laughs> so that should be good fun. And my bold prediction for 2019, mm. um, yeah, look, um, going back to Tiger, I think he'll win a major. I think he'll win the US Masters. He might even win two. And he'll be hunting down Jack Nicholas's record of 18 majors, okay. which everyone thought would never be beaten. Okay. Well, we'll dredge, uh, we'll dredge these comments up again, obviously, in our show in 12 months' time. Gilly, over to you. Hard to beat that. My, um, my high and low was Greg Norman on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Just so joking, many, just so joking. But oh, okay. if you, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favour uh. and um, start following Greg because it's reliably entertaining. I think my high was uh, Kylian Mbappe um, for France against Argentina in the World Cup. Wow. Uh, just a stunning individual performance, the the like of which hasn't been seen in football for in the World Cup for a long, long time. Did you have him in your fantasy team as well? I did. Yeah, I did. it helps, doesn't it? Yeah, I did, and I suppose that was a kind of second high was winning the tipping comp oh, again, again. Fantasy, um, fantasy team comp. My low was the South Africa Australia um, cricket series in mm. South Africa, not just for Sandpaper Gate, but for the the whole the whole series was wrong from the start. A line was definitely crossed in that series, and it was. It was uh, uncomfortable and uh, hard to watch. Hard to watch. Mm. Uh, 2019, very much looking forward, um, ironically enough, to the return of Steve Smith. Um, whether that goes mm. well or goes badly, I mm. think it's going to be very, very um, interesting and entertaining to see what does happen. Mm. And my bold prediction um, as a ex-South African is that South Africa will win the World Cup next year. <laughs> <laughs> that rugby World Cup. That is a bold prediction. Yeah, that is. Uh, so my high... I got a very negative high. My high was just seeing Richmond not go back to back. All right. Yeah, just so relieved they didn't do okay. it back to back. I, I don't Jared, know why. Jared Hayne would call you a hater. Yeah, well, it's not that I. Yeah, I don't care what he thinks about me. Uh, my low is uh, also relates to the South African series that you refer to, Gilly. But the, my low is the apoplectic response to that ball tampering and the media f- frenzy of which we contribute in some very small way. Granted that the frenzy that was fueled for days and days, and there were some legitimate concerns and legitimate problems that need to be, but oh my goodness. And I think that that frenzy was borne out in the excessive um, punishments that were meted out. Uh, looking forward to defending our Asian Cup win, our Asian Cup title. Uh, that's not too far, just around the corner. So go, Arnie, go. Very interested to see whether that would be that, that was a bit of a fluke or an aberration last time around or whether there was, we've got some consistency. And bold prediction, it will be a dire year, and I'm going to say two years, for Dan Ricciardo at Renault. During oh. which time I suspect Verstappen, well, not, not I suspect, during which time I'm going to say Verstappen will win a title at Red Bull. But the $25 million a year will probably soften the blow for Dan. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. I mean, there's money, but there's, he's been very vocal about being in it to actually win a championship. I'm not looking forward to his uh, Formula 1 career over the next Let's year hope you're or wrong. two. Let's it's, hope you're wrong, Richie. It's, it's the next step to Ferrari, though, isn't it? Potentially. Potentially. Two-year contract, everything changes in two years' time, so we'll see how we go. All right, folks, we're going to leave it there. So uh, all the best for the holiday season to you and indeed to you, Gilly. Take it easy. See you later. Happy New Year. Bye, Jono. See you see in 2019. You, see you next year. And indeed, see you at the More Than Just a Game Christmas party, which we're now Ooh, about to decamp to. corks are popping. Exactly. Uh, so thanks very much, much for your company in 2018. Don't forget, follow us on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. Best of the season to you. And until next time, it's bye for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.